Beloved, I invite you to open God's Word, if you have a copy before you, uh, first to a pair of readings. First, we read from the Gospel of Luke, beginning at chapter 9, verse 51, reading to verse 56, and then we'll read from Luke 10, beginning at verse 21. We begin reading then from God's Holy Word as it comes to us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, beginning at verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. And then we turn to chapter 10, beginning at verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Then, beloved, we come to our text for this morning's sermon, beginning at verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with, all your, or with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. 
But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said to him, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Thus far, our reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, are we willing to practice radical love? Are we willing to love God and our neighbors with everything that we have and everything that we have been given? That is the question which is before us in our text today. The the parable of the Good Samaritan is perhaps the most well-known of all of Jesus' parables. The term Good Samaritan is one which is still found in popular culture today. Frequently used to describe someone who carries out an act of mercy or kindness for a stranger. And our familiarity with this parable may rob it of some of its impact. But make no mistake, for those listening to Jesus, especially that first time, this parable would have been a real shocker. For with this parable, Jesus teaches us that there are no limits or restrictions on the love that we are called to show to God and our neighbor. So, beloved, I proclaim God's word as it comes to us in the parable of the Good Samaritan and in its surrounding context using the following theme. Jesus teaches us to love those we would prefer to hate. And he does this first by teaching us to love our God and second by teaching us to love our neighbor. Now, beginning back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, which we read earlier, Luke's gospel begins to describe what some have called Jesus' ministry under the shadow of the cross. See, here we begin to see Jesus prepare his disciples for the day when he will no longer be present in person, no longer able to instruct them face to face. And in this section of Luke's gospel, there are a number of events which aren't mentioned in the other gospel accounts, including this parable of the Good Samaritan that we'll be looking at. We read that Jesus was in the midst of instructing his disciples when a lawyer stands up to put him to the test. Now this lawyer would have been an expert with regard to Jewish religious law. And here it seems he wishes to see if Jesus' knowledge of the law rivals his own. Now standing in the presence of a, a teacher or rabbi was the respectful thing to do. 
But the lawyer's desire to put Jesus to the test implies that the lawyer is not simply asking this question out of a genuine desire to learn from Jesus. This man may honor Jesus by calling him teacher, but he doesn't really seem to want to become one of Jesus' disciples himself. Now his question is appropriate enough. He asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We know that Jesus had only recently sent out his disciples to proclaim that the kingdom of God was near. And we can see elsewhere very clearly that eternal life is the the great reward given to those who enter into this kingdom of God that Jesus and his disciples were proclaiming. But instead of answering the man directly, Jesus asks him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? You might say Jesus is throwing him an easy one. This lawyer would have been well-versed in the law. And it's also possible that Jesus' question might be understood as, how do you recite it? And this would explain why the lawyer answers him with a creed. Because he says to Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer's answer was a a typical summary, which combines parts of Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, which stresses the need to love God, with Leviticus 19, verse 18, which stresses the need to love one's neighbor. And in response to this summary, Jesus states, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Now this is not the typical response of a rabbi in that day. A a standard rabbinical response would be to explore which parts of the law were truly essential to righteousness. Because it was well understood that carrying out the whole law with perfection was an impossible task. But Jesus simply affirms that the man should carry out the whole law perfectly. The lawyer would have wanted Jesus to give some some limited requirements to explain how an ordinary human being could be good enough for eternal life. But our Lord simply states that a person needs to perfectly carry out the requirements of the law without listing any qualifiers or provisions whatsoever. You see, beloved, it's ultimately meant to lead the man to the realization that he can't possibly fulfill the requirements of the law on his own, in his own life. Jesus' words are meant to teach that man that he needs to look outside of himself if he wants to obtain eternal life. This lawyer embodies those Jesus spoke about in Luke 10, verse 21, when he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. The the wise and prudent, those like this lawyer, believe they can solve their problems on their own. 
But babes or little children, they know they need to look for help. They need to look outside of themselves to accomplish difficult things. And nothing is more difficult, more impossible for an ordinary human being than to live a life of perfect obedience. Now, eternal life does require perfect obedience to the law. But because we cannot do this in ourselves, we must look elsewhere. The only way in which we can be righteous before the requirements of the law is to rely upon the person of Jesus Christ. The only one who has perfectly fulfilled all those requirements of the law. The one who graciously imputes or extends that righteousness to those who put their faith in him. Later on in the New Testament, a a jailer in Philippi asks a a very similar question to that of the lawyer. He asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And there Paul and Silas respond directly with the clear words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. We must believe in the Lord Jesus because it's only by placing our faith and trust in Him that we can receive the cleansing from sin and share in His perfect righteousness. It is only in the Lord Jesus Christ that anyone can claim that they have loved God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. And this brings us to our second point. The lawyer in our text has not seen this discussion go the way that he most likely imagined. So desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now the expected answer would be that his neighbors are his family, friends, closer associates. And we can presume that the lawyer had probably done a fairly good job of loving these people. And he would be able to as firm as much to Jesus. The lawyer was likely hoping that he could assert that he had been faithful in loving these people and so perhaps earn the admiration of the crowd around Jesus at that time. But Jesus takes this opportunity to teach the man a lesson. Once again, he doesn't directly answer the man's question. Instead, he starts to tell a parable. Now, with this in mind, we don't need to assume that the following events are historical. It's something designed to teach the lawyer and the people around Jesus an important lesson. Jesus begins to set the scene, saying, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. This is something which people could easily imagine happening to them. This particular route between Jerusalem and Jericho was one that had been plagued with bandits throughout much of history. The surrounding area was fairly hilly, and it provided bandits with plenty of locations in which they could set up ambushes on travelers camps that they could hide away in if the local authorities should come by. So a man being robbed along this route was nothing new. 
Now, Jesus never identifies the ethnicity of the man who was going down. But everyone in that Jewish crowd around Jesus would naturally think of him as being a Jew. And so it would be easy for someone listening to imagine being attacked and beaten in a similar manner. Now, we ought to take special note of the condition in which the robbers leave this poor man. Being stripped of his clothes meant that people couldn't identify his origins. You see, in ancient Palestine, most people wore clothes or garments which were rather specific to their ethnic group. You could sometimes even identify which city a person came from based on their style of clothes. So normally, if you were going along, you could tell if someone was a Jew or a Samaritan or a Phoenician or belonged to some other tribe just by looking at them. But being stripped, this man was rendered anonymous. The fact that the man was left half dead would imply that he's on that very doorstep of death. We can assume that he's in a state in which he's either unconscious or at least otherwise unable to speak. And this further complicates the issue of identifying who he was. And more importantly, in that time, what group or nationality did he belong to? So the robbers, in other words, have turned this man into an anonymous human being in need. Someone who does not clearly belong to any ethnic or religious community. Now Jesus continues. By chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now the priesthood at this time had been elevated to a a prestigious and elite position in Jewish society. And so this priest, he would have been someone with the money and ability to help. Now anyone listening to this story would assume that this priest would have been someone riding a a horse or donkey. He would have been a a high-status individual with money and resources to help. So why does the priest pass by on the other side? Well, some scholars have noted that as a priest, he may have been concerned with his state of ritual purity. See, if he made contacts with someone who was dead, he would be considered ritually impure. He was not allowed to approach closer than four cubits to a a dead man lest he become defiled. And if he did become defiled, it would be a huge hassle for the priest. Jesus notes that he had been going down the road. In other words, he had been traveling from Jerusalem, which was at a higher elevation, to Jericho, which lies at a lower spot in the Jordan Valley. The most plausible reason for a priest to be traveling that way would have been if he had finished his temple service and so was returning home. But if the priest should become ritually impure by touching or coming to a corpse, he would be required to travel back to the temple. And there he would have to undergo a a ritual purification, a process which would take at least a week and involve the sacrifice of a red heifer. So it would cost the priest time and money. But perhaps even more importantly, We should note the ethical culture 
in which this priest lived. You see, this was not a culture which promoted helping out a random stranger. After all, a random stranger could easily be someone that the priest would consider to be a sinner. A rabbinic tradition in the time of Jesus went like this. Give to a devout man. Do not go to the help of a sinner. Do good to a humble man. Give nothing to a godless one. Refuse him bread. Do not give him any. It might make him strong or stronger than you are. Then you would be repaid evil twice over for all the good you had done him. You see, this was not a culture in which people were promoted to help out anonymous strangers. You helped those you knew, those who deserved it in your own eyes. Jesus continues this parable saying, Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. It's possible that the Levite had even seen the priest ahead of him and noted his actions and figured, well, if the priest isn't doing anything, why should I? Unlike the priest, the Levite is not bound by such strict regulations regarding his ritual purity. Levites only had to be ritually pure during their time of service at the temple. And so outside of that time of service, he could become ritually impure and it wouldn't be a big deal. So unlike the priest who keeps his distance, the Levite appears to be willing to make a a closer inspection. We're told that the Levite came and looked. The implication is that he came up close to the man, looked upon him, and then decided to go around. The Levite, after all, comes from the same ethical culture as the priest. A culture in which love for one's neighbor is restricted to those who are good members of the same tribe or religion. So he takes a look, but not seeing any sign that this man belongs to his tribe or religious community, he continues on his way. But, Jesus continues, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Here the, the parable goes off the rails, so to speak. What Jesus' audience would have expected would be for a, a regular Jewish layman to appear. After all, if you've already seen a priest and then a Levite, the natural expectation would next to be seeing a regular Jewish man. But Jesus throws his audience a curveball. He is going to make the hero of this parable, so to speak, a person everyone in his audience would have been inclined to hate and despise. The conflicts and issues between the Jews and the Samaritans were many and sad. A rabbinic work written just before the time of Christ went like this. There are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir, a reference to the Edomites, and the Philistines, and this stupid people living at Shechem, that is, the Samaritans. One scholar has noted that the Samaritans were publicly 
cursed in the synagogues. And a petition was daily offered up to God, praying that the Samaritans might not be partakers in eternal life. Make no mistake, beloved, the hatred between Jews and Samaritans was as strong as any racial or ethnic conflict we may be familiar with today. It's a hatred and conflict that we witness in part earlier in Luke chapter 9, verses 52 and 53. We read how Jesus had sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. He was intending to travel to Jerusalem. And then we witness the disciples, James and John, in response to this rejection saying, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? The disciples never offered anything like this when a Jewish town rejected Jesus. But to a Samaritan town, the typical Jewish response would be, why not? They're just Samaritans. But we read there that the Lord Jesus turned and rebuked them. And with this parable as well, we can see Jesus shattering the old order of things. Now this Samaritan was not someone who would be unfamiliar with God's law. He was bound by a version of the Torah. Now the Samaritans had their own version of God's law. There was some minor changes in it, mostly with regard to substituting Mount Gerizim as a location to worship God as opposed to Mount Zion. But the purity laws were the same. This Samaritan would have had to deal with the same sort of issues of becoming unclean when contacting a dead body, but he doesn't let this stop them or stop him. He came to where that man was, like the Levite, but he doesn't leave the man there. Now, to be clear, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was not Samaritan territory. He could safely assume that this man was not one of his countrymen. Nevertheless, this Samaritan decides that he will show love to his neighbor. The Samaritan went to where the man lay and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. This oil and wine would have served as a kind of first aid remedy. Pouring it on the wound would have washed out the dirt from the wounds, and this would have lessened the chance of infection. But we might also say there's a certain religious significance to what's going on. Oil and wine were important parts of the temple worship. They were things that the people would have associated with the work of priests and Levites. But here, it is a Samaritan who is administering these things to someone who is presumably a Jew. The Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite would have poured out oil and wine on the altar before God in Jerusalem. But here, this Samaritan pours out these things on a stranger. It's an image which also reflects God's actions in the Old Testament when the Lord is described as binding up the wounds of his people and pouring on oil and wine. 
Next, the Samaritan set the injured man on his own animal. As a result, he would either be forced to share the animal or walk in front of the animal like a servant. Neither way, he's going to be traveling for kilometers in a very inconvenient fashion. And eventually, he brings this injured man to an inn and takes care of him. Now, he could have simply dropped him off at the inn and left the man at that point. But he continues to show this stranger sacrificial love, ensuring that he'll survive the night. The next day, he takes out two denarii, that's two days' wages. He gives them to the innkeeper and says, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. And this is another act of important generosity. Obviously, the wounded man wouldn't be able to pay the innkeeper anything because he had been robbed. But if he had simply been abandoned at this point, it's likely that after he had been healed, he would have been thrown in a debtor's prison for the debts he owed the innkeeper. So the Samaritan is ensuring that this man will receive everything he needs to get back on his feet. Let us keep in mind that our Samaritan would have no hope of being repaid Most likely, he would never see this man again. After all, he has to promise the innkeeper to reimburse him whenever he's back in the area. But by then, the injured man almost certainly would have been better and have departed. So what do we see in the Good Samaritan? What we should see first is the person of Jesus Christ. When I reflect upon the fact that the Samaritan stops and helps the man after he had been rejected by the priest and the Levite. Much like Christ came to, to minister to the common people who were like sheep without a shepherd because the religious leaders were not properly looking after them. The Samaritan comes bringing healing to the beaten man. Much as Christ had come healing the sick and the demon-possessed among the people. The Samaritan is someone who doesn't just help the man, but ensures that he will get better even after he departs. Much like Jesus had been promising the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Telling them that after he had departed, that he would continue to ensure that they received the guidance and instruction that they needed. The Samaritan acted to save a person who had done nothing to deserve his care and safekeeping. Someone who would have hated him in ordinary circumstances. Much as Christ came extending mercy and grace to us. People who have done nothing to deserve that mercy and grace. People who in ordinary circumstances would have hated him if it were not for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Having delivered this parable, Jesus asked the lawyer, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? We might note that Jesus has reshaped the lawyer's question. He doesn't tell the lawyer who his neighbor is. Instead, he asks which of these men has been a neighbor. Which of these three has actually done what the law of God requires? Which of these three has actually loved his neighbor as himself? 
The answer is obvious, of course, and so the lawyer admits as much. He who showed mercy on him. Perhaps he couldn't bear to actually say that it was the Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. He tells the lawyer to go and be a neighbor to those around. Even if they are those outside of his religious or ethnic community. He challenges that lawyer to show love even to those that he would consider his mortal enemy. A challenge to love even those who hate us serves as a reminder that we cannot do such things perfectly. We cannot expect to do such things through our own strength. No, we must pray for the Holy Spirit to work within us so that we might be able to overcome our sinful nature which is inclined towards all kinds of hatred. It might instead embrace a new nature characterized by love and mercy for all. And so let us search our hearts and consider whether there are people that we would prefer to hate rather than love. Are we perhaps willing to make fun or tell jokes about people who have a darker shade of skin? Do we mock or insult those who wear different items of clothing that are own, such as turbans? Do we freely insult and slander those who might come from a different perspective on politics or religion? Would we slander those who are perhaps left-wing in their politics? Would we make fun of Muslims or condemn them or fear them? Let us realize that our Lord offered himself on the cross for the sake of people who did not deserve his love. And he calls upon us to show love as well to people around us. Even if we don't think that they deserve it. Even if we have reasons to fear or hate or despise them. Only we know that if we are to do so, we can only do this by ultimately looking to him. The one who was the ultimate good Samaritan to his neighbors on earth. We must trust in Christ's work of renewal within us and strive to follow the example and the commands that he has set down for us. Amen.